Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of Oxford's Global Summitry. This is another in the series Shaking the Global Order, American Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. In fact, this is episode 15 with Jake Sullivan. Jake was the youngest head of the policy planning staff at the State Department and worked for Vice President Joe Biden. He was also a senior policy advisor to Hillary Clinton when she ran for president in 2016. Currently, Jake is a visiting fellow at Yale University Law School and also a senior fellow at the Carnegie Institute in the Geoeconomics and Strategy Program. Given the roles that Jake has played, I was particularly interested in exploring with him some of the questions around big D democratic policy in global order issues, trade and finance and other important questions around globalization. Well, it's a real pleasure for us to have you with us, Jake, and I did want to explore trade policy and trying to understand uh, trade policy for the Democrats and going forward. It's been obviously a contentious question given candidate and then President Trump's policy, to, as best we understand it, towards uh, trade policy. I wanted to reference a quick comment by Fred Bergston who is former head of the Peterson Institute, and he said, a popular fallacy about trade policy in general and the negotiations over revising NAFTA in particular is that trade and trade agreements are a zero-sum game and that whatever benefits one country in a trade deal necessarily hurts the other. And I raise that because just very recently, a Senator Schumer identified and released a new seven-point trade policy platform, which included changes to NAFTA, I think, particularly around labor and environment, maybe also investment, I don't know. Uh, the Buy America reform raising that threshold, a new economic security investment watchdog, uh, measures to counter currency manipulation, a new trade prosecutor position, penalties for contractors that outsource, and also an outsourcing tax for companies that uh, leave the United States. So taking all that, are the Democrats now kind of in reverse globalization mode? What, what does this mean for democratic trade policy? I don't think that the Democrats are in reverse globalization mode. They just want to make sure that the forces of globalization work for the United States and particularly for American middle class and not against it. And that doesn't mean looking at trade as a zero-sum game, but it does mean reintroducing the concept of reciprocity to our trade arrangements and, and making sure that as we open our markets to other countries, they're opening theirs to us. And as we try to make sure that uh, we are providing a fair and level playing field here, that other countries are doing the same. So I think the set of reforms that Senator Schumer put forward actually reflect a pretty broad consensus across the party. And don't repudiate the idea that America has to trade with the world. It embraces that. It just said, let's make sure we do it in a smart way that delivers benefits for Americans. Well, but, you know, the reciprocity and the leveling the, the playing field, 
that begins to shift right over to our good friend, uh, the new president of the United States, doesn't it? I mean, he constantly critiques trade policies, NAFTA and others, as being unfair to the United States. Well, I would say two things. Number one, Trump's got a, a kind of might makes right, everything's got to be a bilateral deal mindset. It is a zero-sum mindset. It basically says if there's a $1 trade deficit with another country that's $1 too much, we've got to be in trade balance. I think he's looking at the wrong metrics and he is applying a kind of zero-sum mindset. I think what the Democrats are doing is saying you can have positive sum trade outcomes. In fact, that's what's produced the best and most sustainable growth uh, if you look through economic history. But in order to have positive sum outcomes where both trading partners benefit, you have to have this concept of reciprocity. So I would say that the Democrats start from a different proposition than Donald Trump does. But they believe that there are things we have to do to introduce more fairness into our trade policy. And uh, I think the evidence has suggested that they're not wrong about that. Uh, sorry, what evidence are we looking at? Well, just take, for example, the concept uh, of not present day, but not too recent past Chinese currency manipulation. The fact is that there was a period of time where the Chinese were actively intervening in currency markets to give themselves a leg up in terms of uh, their trade relationship with the United States. As things stand right now, neither the WTO nor any other instrument has the kind of capacity to be able to respond to that that the United States needs. So that's one example. Other examples include the fact that our markets and our various sectors are much more open to investment from Chinese firms than uh, is the case in China with respect to American firms mm -hmm. and American exports. And so those are a couple of examples of where actually even standard trade theory would tell you that you're not getting the kind of outcomes you should get because one party, not the United States, the counterparty, is actually distorting the market by engaging in unfair trade practices. So just looking at those two examples, on the currency manipulation, the WTO has never presumed that currency manipulation is a subsidy. That is true. But, you know, what was true, let's say, with Chinese currency, and we can debate that, but it certainly looked like there was an effort to keep the renminbi low. But that's not true now. And in fact, if anything, it's the other way around, right? There is a view that the, the renminbi, at least up until, yeah. let's say, last month, was going to fall even further and that the efforts of the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, was to keep the the currency up. So, I mean, these things, you know, seem to me not to be secular at all. Uh, cyclical um, relate to economic policymaking sometimes. But how do you deal with that? Well, you can't. I mean, so first of all, I think you're right. The current evidence does not support a finding of Chinese currency manipulation. In fact, quite the opposite, as you just laid out. But once a country has dipped in a well like that, you have to assume that they will be tempted to dip in that well again when the economic conditions suggest that it will be to their advantage. So this is like the old legal proposition of capable of repetition yet evading review. We have to be in a position where we have tools to be able to respond to that. And presently, we don't have those tools. And by the way, just because the Chinese aren't currently engaged in currency manipulation doesn't mean they aren't engaged in other practices that 
skewed the playing field in their favor to the detriment, not just of the United States, but to overall global imbalances. Uh, you know, obviously, the dumping of certain commodities is an example of that. The forced localization requirements is another. The way in which China abuses uh, joint ventures and similar types of arrangements to extract intellectual property from the United States. There is a long list of ways in which one could say we need to improve trade enforcement and improve the rules of the road in a way that does not mean we're closing off our borders or starting a trade war, but that's producing a fairer, more effective trade system for all parties. Well, the issues you've raised, and they are obviously important issues, seem to be particularly related to China. So why a renegotiation of the NAFTA? Unless you can point to it, I don't see currency manipulation. Certainly, with respect to Canada, it's been free and floating for a long time now, the Canadian dollar, and it goes up and it goes down. Some of the other issues about investment restrictions or intellectual property requirements don't apply to either Mexico or Canada. So why the renegotiation for the North American free trade arrangement? Well, that's a question you could equally pose in Mexico City or in Ottawa as in Washington, D.C., because all three countries agreed that renegotiation of the terms of NAFTA was necessary. In fact, such a renegotiation happened. It happened in the context of putting together the TPP. Just to give you one example, uh, the Clinton administration, when they originally brought NAFTA to the Congress, explained that they could only handle the labor and environmental issues inside agreements that were not enforceable or in the core of the agreement. Since then, American trade policy has moved to the point in other FTAs of putting labor and environmental protections in the core of the agreement. So that would be one way in which an update to NAFTA would be necessary. You mentioned investment provisions. There are other aspects as well that could modernize NAFTA in ways that reflect 2017 rather than 1993, and that also reflect the progress we've made more generally in our trade arrangements. But I would also say on the subject of NAFTA, I think this is really important. One of the ways in which Democrats and Trump see the world differently on trade is that Democrats believe that rules-based multilateral trade agreements actually can serve the long-term benefit of the United States, as well as the, the broader common interest, whereas Trump has an obsession with bilateral deals. He thinks every deal should be cut bilaterally. And that means the U.S. will never be in a position to establish a baseline of rules, updated rules, that really get at the, the meaningful threats to competition and unfair trade today. So, for example, even those of us who have concerns about the particulars of TPP in the Democratic Party would not argue that ATPP, some form of a multilateral Asian trade architecture is a bad thing. And the same thing would be true in terms of a trade arrangement between the United States and the European Union. You've talked about improvements and so forth. But, you know, when you look, I mean, one of the overarching concerns is the growing inequality in the United States, right? And the suppression of wages and so forth, failure for wages to increase and rise. I mean, you know, as many trade proponents have suggested, most particularly Danny Roderick at Harvard, rather than look at the trade agreements, let's look at the national policy environment. For example, we know that after signing NAFTA, there was supposed to be an adjustment bank and adjustment 
programs that the United States was going to implement. And of course, Congress never funded those appropriately, right? Uh, and that a lot of the dilemmas around labor and environment really are focused on the United States and not on the multilateral trading regime. Uh, look, I think Danny Roderick has made a very fair point on this. It's, it's indisputable that the linchpin of an effective policy that produces balanced, sustainable growth that strengthens rather than hollows out the middle class is domestic policy, is sound investments in people, the infrastructure, social safety net, and so forth. No doubt about it. But when those are not forthcoming, pushing forward with trade agreements that don't have the domestic side of the house getting in order is only going to exacerbate these problems of inequality, wage stagnation, uh, and the vulnerability of the middle class. So what I think part of the Democrats' message going into 2020 has to be, we're not just going to supply votes to push through trade agreements when we're not investing in American competitiveness and in the foundations of American economic strength, that these are a package deal, that yes, we should have multilateral trade agreements, but they should go hand in hand in investments in infrastructure, investments in education, investments in the, uh, the types of protections against dislocation that occur when you uh, pursue a trade agreement. And that's not just about TAA, trade adjustment assistance. It's about a much broader suite of domestic reforms. And I think part of the challenge of Democrats in the past 20 years has been that we have been prepared to go along with a trade agenda that Republicans like without demanding that Republicans come along to a certain extent with a domestic investments agenda that Democrats feel is critical to, to shoring up the middle class. And so I think we, we need to think about this in a more holistic manner and not just wave through trade agreements when they're not accompanied by these kinds of investments. Okay. That requires, of course, some of that polarization in American politics, which we've all seen for over the last uh, you know, decade or so, to go away. And I, I mean, I guess we'll just wait to see whether or not that's possible. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'll give you, you know, just one more issue where the politics are incredibly difficult, but uh, it just goes to show you how comprehensively we have to think about this. Just as we have to connect our domestic investments with our trade policy, we also have to think about trade policy as being embedded in a broader international economic policy. Trade policy is just one piece. Okay. In fact, if you look at a deal like TPP, how many chapters actually deal strictly with trade barriers or traditional trade disciplines and how many deal with other economic issues. And, and you'll see that increasingly we're having to take on a much broader array of uh, economic elements uh, in these arrangements. So, for example, if the United States and other industrialized countries around the world are allowing the type of rampant tax evasion that is happening right now, mm -hmm. If they are not finding a way to crack down on that, then the, the wealthiest uh, people and uh, corporations are able, in a sense, to deprive treasuries, national treasuries, of the kind of money they need to be able to make these domestic investments. And so a sensible trade policy has to be connected to a sensible domestic policy, but also to 
international tax policy, international competition and antitrust policy, uh, international policy as it relates to financial regulation. And we need to have a comprehensive economic strategy that covers all of these elements. Isn't that then a vote for, as an example, the G20? I mean, if you want to take a look at where the question of tax evasion and base erosion kinds of examinations are taking place, it's, it's at that multilateral level. Nations have come together. They've, you, know, you also have the Financial Stability Board, which is looking at those problems. If anything, uh, you know, that suggests the United States is kind of going in the wrong direction to the extent that there seems to be, in this current administration, a great deal of skepticism expressed about this kind of multilateral effort. Right. I think we are going in the wrong direction. I'd, I'd say two things about this. First, even in the best of times, the G20 was not a particularly effective steering committee for the global economy. It was much more effective as a crisis response mechanism back in 2008. Uh, so I, I think putting a lot of eggs in the G20 basket on international tax policy is not necessarily going to yield a huge number of chickens. That being said, I think that if we put the same diplomatic muscle, the same high-level political attention, the same amount of resources into this tax issue at the G20 that we put into, say, negotiating TPP, we'd produce outcomes that we have not seen forthcoming to date. It's not enough just to have this issue on the agenda at the G20. This has to become a serious priority, and we have to see how it interacts with and is connected to these other trade policy issues that you and I have been discussing. So I think we have our work cut out for us, and I don't get the sense that the present administration is particularly interested in doing this work either in the domestic investments or in these broader issues of international economic policy. But what I will tell you is okay. that if you look at a chart of income gains from 1980 to today across the major economies of the world, the wealthiest did extremely well and the poorest made substantial gains globally. Right. Middle classes did not. And so this is a problem that, yes, is chiefly about domestic policy, but requires thoughtful and sensible international economic coordination to address uh, because it is being replicated across advanced economies throughout the world. But doesn't that suggest greater and not lesser efforts in the G20? I mean, unless you can identify a different institutional setting. No, we don't have something better than the G20. And so I think we should uh, we should use it. But. My point is that we tend to treat the G20 as a talk shop, and so it has become a talk shop. It produces a communique. It produces some modest policy adjustments, whereas we tend to treat trade negotiations as a significant undertaking that actually produce a real result at the end of the day that changes the equation. And I'm just arguing that we need to invest in the G20 and in that agenda the same way that we invest in the trade negotiations that, that we pursued under both Republican and Democratic presidents. That in turn requires a more comprehensive conversation between the domestic side of the House and the international economic side of the House when it comes to laying out these priorities. And I think that our government, the U.S. government, is not set up uh, as effectively as it could be that we silo these issues. We tend to leave 
the G20 to Treasury, the trade negotiations to USTR, the foreign policy stuff to state, the domestic policy stuff to the National Economic Council. We have to find a way to integrate all of them across the board because take other major countries, Germany, China, etc. They do a much better job of thinking comprehensively about all of their policy tools and instruments and how together they can yield results for their people. We need to do the same thing. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. So if anything, it's being more, I take it, more comprehensive in the United States in terms of the policy generation, policy making, than taking that positioning to whatever important institutional setting uh, might yield some result. That's right. And look, this is not, the United States is not going to dictate outcomes, but uh, I think we have a lot of leverage to bring to bear to shape the rules in a way that, yes, work for us and our people, but work for everyone else too. And we should be thinking hard about how to do that. And, and you made the point, which I think is completely accurate, that at the moment, we're absolutely moving in the wrong direction. President seems entirely uninterested in using multilateral forums to advance right. our interests. And, and I think that that is ultimately going to redound to the detriment of the very American workers that he purports to be defending. That's fair. I guess my only last question with respect to those interests and the agglomeration of those interests in the United States is we know, or we think we know, why intellectual property protections had such a significant role in the TPP, for example, because there were industries, there were interests in the United States that viewed that as very important. And as a result, needless to say, in the TPP negotiations, that represented a significant element of the negotiating position of the United States government. So, so this is a really important point, because when you look at what the Democrats are laying out in terms of their trade agenda going into 2020, you can distinguish between Trump and the Democrats on the grounds that we have discussed so far. But one place where I think the Democrats actually believe that our trade policy has gone off the rails is that it has put too much emphasis on making the rest of the world safe for American corporate investment, which doesn't necessarily translate into more jobs or rising incomes in the United States, and not enough emphasis on dealing with the vulnerabilities of workers in import competitive industries in the United States or dealing with the dislocations that happen. That is a matter of priority. What are your priorities in a trade negotiation? And this whole issue of intellectual property uh, the biotech timelines that were a subject of some controversy in TPP is one in which I believe the United States has been too willing to make the priority something that industry wants. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the overall economy or the middle class is going to benefit from it. So that is an example to me of something we have to take a hard look at. How would you actually build a new FTA, a new model that doesn't just rely on the inertia of the past or allow those people who happen to have a seat at the table or in the room to sort of dictate the priorities and parameters of the negotiation? Let me switch gears slightly, and I want to raise the question of environment and uh, climate change. As we have recently seen, this president has withdrawn from the Paris Agreement. Uh, now, having said that, in fact, the way in which it's structured, you can't withdraw until uh, essentially the very end of his first term. That's uh, the way it was set up. That actual withdrawal would only occur at that point in time. 
I guess the question is, you know, what should Democrats be doing in the face of this president's withdrawal and what appears to be at best ambivalent support for certain aspects of climate change by members of his cabinet? I, I think that's putting it way too too kindly <laughs> to his cabinet. I mean, they are engaged in an all-out war on science, and I don't think it's hyperbole to say where it comes to the specific issue of climate change, an all-out war on facts, on basic facts. They're trying to suppress uh, peer-reviewed scientific conclusions. They are trying to hollow out the Environmental Protection Agency and the climate change aspects of the Department of Energy. I mean, this is a full-on ideological uh, struggle for a stick-your-head-in-the-sand, turn-back-the-clock, dirty energy policy that ultimately is going to hurt our economy and hurt our security. So I think that we need to call that out for what it is. I will say, though, that's the bad news. The good news is that if you look at the American private sector and if you look at American states and localities, and not just states and localities governed by Democrats, but by Republicans as well, you're actually seeing the clean energy revolution continuing to move forward. And I believe that the United States is actually going to meet its Paris commitments, even without the federal government stepping up to do its part, simply by virtue of the fact that the private sector recognizes where the winds are blowing and mayors and governors are recognizing that if they want to stay competitive and they want strong economic growth in their states, they're going to need to do their part. So actually, if you get a Democratic president in 2021, that's an if, you know, Trump could be reelected. That president would be in position to put us right back into Paris and be on a track to meet the commitments that we've set forth. Uh, That doesn't mean we should excuse what the federal government is doing, but it does mean that we should encourage everybody else to do their part to make sure that the United States steps up to the plate. Fair enough. Okay. One other and possibly last aspect to this overall view of American foreign policy, and this is before we, in effect, began the podcast, you mentioned that you've been traveling in Asia. Obviously, recently, the question of Korea has become a major issue and a question of leadership of the international system. What do we make of the increasing rhetoric? I mean, we're used to it in the context of North Korea, but we're certainly not used to it in the context of American presidents. And the rising rhetoric, particularly from the president, but from some of his advisors. What does this suggest to you in terms of the way in which he handles foreign policy problems, foreign policy crises? This is exactly the kind of crisis that requires calm and steady leadership. And what we're getting instead is erratic, intemperate, swerving uh, statements with bombast and bluster. And that's not worthy of the most significant power in the world, the United States of America. I don't think it's helping the situation. That being said, I do think that the national security team is working hard to try to figure out if there is an alternative path forward with North Korea to either war or to acquiescing in North Korea having a nuclear-tipped ICBM. Is there a third way? Is there an alternative to those two totally unpalatable outcomes. Mm -hmm. They're trying to figure out whether or not, for example, they can get China to do its part to actually get North Korea to stop their march forward. 
And for that, they have my sympathies because for the past 20 years, neither Republican nor Democratic administrations have been able to stop the North Korean march. And so we should all approach this issue with some humility. They also have my sympathy because this is a hard balance to strike. On the one hand, you do want to show that all options are on the table because otherwise neither the North Koreans nor the Chinese are going to take you seriously. On the other hand, you don't want to start saber rattling to the point where you precipitate a military conflict that's going to leave us all worse off. So I think the people around Trump, Secretary Mattis, Secretary Tillerson, General McMaster are doing their part to try to strike this balance. And Trump is just making it very hard for them because he's basically becoming indistinguishable in his rhetoric from Kim Jong-un. And that is not a good situation. Are you surprised? I guess uh, asking this question tells you I am surprised how little contact or appear to be discussions between the United States and its in its leadership positions in quotes and its allies. I mean, the United States at the moment doesn't even have an ambassador in the Republic of Korea. And you know, I hear no morning discussions about oh, we just had a significant meeting, a discussion with our Japanese colleagues. I mean, these are the critical allies, and they're likely to be the places, if things go really wrong, they're likely to be the ones that are going to suffer most immediately from any military action. Are you surprised by the lack of attention to this kind of discussion? Well, I think to be fair to the administration, uh, and even to be fair to President Trump, he has gotten on the phone with Abe with more regularity than I think is reported. So it has not been as much of a vacuum as it may seem. I think it reflects a broader challenge, which is that this administration, with the acquiescence of the Secretary of State, is systematically hollowing out the State Department. They just don't see diplomacy as a core instrument of American power. And the wages of that are uh, a lack of close coordination with our allies, a lack of ability to communicate as clearly as we want to with China, and the potential for real misunderstandings and miscalculations with the North Koreans that could lead to escalation and conflict. And so I would implore the administration to figure out how to make diplomacy great again, uh, you know, after this last six months of really hollowing out the capacity of the State Department. I think it's frightening when we have our military working overtime, getting the resources and investments it needs, and our diplomats are sort of being left as an afterthought. Where are we going to be in four years of a Trump administration in terms of your relationships with your allies, the alliances, you know, trade, investment? Where will all of this be? Now, I won't hold you to it, but nevertheless, what's your own best assessment of where kind of what we describe as the liberal international order, where is it in four years? Well, when you deal with someone as erratic as Trump at the helm of the ship of state, uh, trying to predict what course it's going to take becomes extremely difficult, extremely difficult. So I can't even venture a guess. What I can tell you, though, is that the band of possibilities is wider with this president than any president in living memory, which is to say it could range from relative continuity to all the way up to outright global catastrophe. And uh, all of those are possible. What I yeah. will say is the trend lines are bad on the basic issue 
of American standing in the world, American leadership in international institution, American trust and vitality in our alliances, the trend lines are bad. It is pointing in the wrong direction on all of those things. So whether or not there is an outright military conflict, I think we are likely to see atrophy mm-hmm. and decay in uh, the United States' relationships and standing in the world. And that will leave us less safe and secure. It will leave us less prosperous. And frankly, as someone who believes in principled American leadership, I think it will leave the world worse off as well. Well, with that sobering assessment, Jake, I want to thank you for joining us in this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. This Global Symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony C, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com.